0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com slash CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.
1: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1983, a presidential commission was given the job of evaluating the American educational system. The people on the commission ran colleges and universities. They were former governors. They were captains of industry. What they wrote was called a nation at risk. That report said, and this is a quote, If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. A few years later, a new sort of school started to gain steam. Charter schools. Across the country, but especially in big cities, charter schools are changing the game. Back in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina ripped through New Orleans, the state legislature allowed the city to turn 80 percent of the city's public schools into charter schools. So what does the data tell us about how charter schools have performed in the last quarter century or so and whether they help or hurt our schools? David Osborne is the director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. He is also author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. He's a former aide to Vice President Al Gore. And Chester Finn is a president emeritus at the Fordham Institute. He's a former assistant secretary of education in the Reagan administration and author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be here.
2: Nice to be with you. Thanks.
1: Chester, let's start real big picture here, right before we dive into charters. So if you go back to the, to the early 80s, uh, to that Nation at Risk report, when nobody really knew uh, what a charter was, how do you feel like, just bring us up to date, how do you feel like the educational system since that time, since 1983, how has it done?
2: We've made some modest gains, if you judge by things like uh, test scores and graduation rates. uh, Most of the gains on test scores have been in the early grades, though high school graduation rates have improved. High school achievement, by various measures, has not improved much. Uh, We haven't made nearly the gains that the people that wrote The Nation at Risk uh, were urging upon us. And Mm -hmm. while we've been sort of running in place, uh, trying a lot of things for sure, including charter schools, a lot of other countries have, frankly, been gaining on us as you look at the various international comparisons. So it's not, uh, in my view, not good enough to make slow gains if others that are our competitors, our allies, and sometimes our enemies are making faster gains.
1: So, David, why did we turn to charter schools in the first place? What did we think they were going to try to solve for us? What were they going to do for us?
3: Well, this was uh, eight years after a nation at risk and we had enacted reforms and weren't seeing results and some people thought you know we really need to create an innovation zone if you will in public education these schools these traditional districts are very centralized and the key decisions are made at headquarters and principals Don't have the power to hire who they want, fire who they want, determine the pay scales, change the educational model. They're caught in a web of bureaucracy and they can't change. So let's try to create schools that have the autonomy to invent better ways to educate the kids who enroll in their schools and then let's hold them accountable for their performance. And if they fail, let's close them. But if they succeed, let's encourage them, expand them, replicate them.
1: Hmm. Um, Chester, can you define what a charter school is? Because I think like a lot of people... I know this uh, haze of terms. You know, there's public schools, there's charter schools, there's uh, exam schools, there's magnet schools. What, what's a charter school?
2: Yes, it's uh, it can be confusing, but we're up to almost seven thousand charter schools across the country. So uh, it's sort of surprising how few people really have figured out what they are. Right. I uh, mean, millions of kids attend them now. A Charter school is a public school, but it's not a public school operated by the traditional school district. It's an independently operated public school uh, with quite a lot of the autonomies that uh, David was just suggesting, at least in states with decent charter laws. Uh, Charter schools have most of those autonomies. They can be started by uh, parents, by educators, by um, nonprofit organizations, by universities, by others. And they're schools of choice. Uh, They're not schools that you're assigned to attend. They're schools that uh, you opt into because you think it offers you or your child a better opportunity than Mm -hmm. the one available in the regular traditional district. So they're less regulated than district schools. They are, for the most part, independent of the district. But what makes them public is that they're open to everybody. Uh, They're publicly financed. They don't charge tuition. Uh, and they are ultimately accountable to public authorities for their performance. Hmm.
1: So, David, I think, what is it, 5 or 6% of kids in America go to charter schools. 6%. Is that right? 6%. Okay, that's not very many. If only 6% of our kids are going to them, how have they changed education? How have they changed even schools that are not charter schools?
3: Well, of that 6%, the the great majority are in urban areas because most of the people who create charter schools are dedicated do-gooders trying to help poor and minority kids. So, in the cities, you have much higher concentrations in many cities. Uh, New Orleans, as you said, is now up to 93%. Next year, it'll be 100% in charters. That's Washington, D.C., yeah. what last year was 46%. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet. It's probably 47 this year. Detroit is over 50%. There are something like 30 cities that have uh, over 30% of their kids in charters. One, it, they create really innovative schools all kinds of different models. I mean, you know, you can have a Montessori bilingual elementary school. Mm. You can have a residential high school for kids whose home lives are chaotic. Mm. You have single, a few single-sex schools. Uh, just many, many different models. They also impact the districts, of course. Most of the districts where charters become numerous do respond. They realize, look, we're losing a lot of kids, and therefore, we're losing a lot of money. So we've got to figure out how to offer something better so the parents want to come to our schools. So that competition has resulted in a lot of innovation in districts.
1: Now, let me ask you about the politics of this, because one of the interesting things is that my understanding from from experts I've talked to is that people who tend to be most helped by charter schools – often support politicians who don't really support charter schools and people who tend to be least helped by charter schools tend to support politicians, you could call them Republicans, who tend to be a lot more supportive of charter schools. How do you explain that sort of paradox where people are doing this funny sort of political crossover?
2: It's a great question and it's an interesting paradox. It's not a complete paradox. Most uh, states with charter laws started in a bipartisan way, and there's still quite a lot of bipartisan support for charter schools, uh, especially at the uh, presidential or gubernatorial level. When it comes to sort of parsing legislators within a state, however, uh, what you said is, uh, is broadly speaking true. Uh, a lot of support has come from uh, suburban Republicans who don't want charter schools in their own cushy suburbs. And the beneficiaries are, for the most part, urban kids whose districts are represented by Democrats who are taking orders, in many cases, from the teachers union and who therefore don't want to vote for charter schools, even though their constituents are attending them.
3: Can I add to this? Yeah, Um, please do. You know, charters came mostly from Democrats. The first bill was in Minnesota carried by Democrats. Uh, I think the second was California, carried by Democrats, well, then Colorado shocked. Democrats, then Massachusetts Democrats so, I was
1: shocked to learn when I was doing the research that that the head of the American Federation for Teachers, one of one of the first people was like let 's do have some charter schools like that just completely you know went against yeah, my he, view of how the political alignment is today.
3: He was one of the key originators of the idea. it yeah. was a group It was a group thing, but he was one of those who really contributed. Um, but at a certain point in time, the teachers unions realized that most charter schools were not unionizing, that they embraced a more professional model where the teachers had a role in helping to run the school and didn't feel a need for a union. And then they began—they put two and two together and realized as the charter sector grows, our union is going to shrink. And they basically declared war on charters. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you had democratic legislators, who often represent the urban areas, starting to vote against charters. And you had Republicans who wanted innovation, wanted choices, and sort of ideologically agreed with more of a market approach, voting for- Didn't feel for, good
1: about teachers' unions right? general, right? Had no,
3: right? They weren't going to get those votes anyway. Right. So they were more
1: supportive of charters, and, and that's kind of where we are today. So I'm going to get into some of those questions that unions have. But but let's do one thing first, which is talk about a place – let's talk about a place where charters have really worked and a place where charters have not worked as well. Um, David, you want to talk about a place where charters have really worked?
3: Sure. Think? And I could pick uh, many different cities. The, the ones I wrote about in the book are New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Denver, and Indianapolis, I'll just talk about New Orleans because it's the most dramatic, was one of the worst school districts in America before Hurricane Katrina. Um, Half the kids dropped out. Less than 20 percent went to college. It was corrupt. It was almost bankrupt. Uh, After Katrina, 25 district officials, including the chairwoman of the state board, were indicted for corruption. Wow. Um, A real mess. So the state legislature, both parties were completely fed up with New Orleans public schools. So the state legislature voted to take any school, public school in New Orleans that was performing below the state average and put it in this new thing they had created two years before called the recovery school district. And that district gradually converted many of these schools to charters. And we see the most rapid improvement in the country, if not in American history. So you have a very poor city, 82% African American, about the same percentage, low income, that is outperforming its state on the key metrics, high school graduation and college going rates. That's unheard of in this country.
1: Chester, do you want to take the other side of that question and talk about a place where uh, charter schools are not doing that well? Maybe they are underperforming and like what we can learn from that. Yeah,
2: there are a number of places where charters are marginally better than the dismal school districts that surround them. But uh, you still shouldn't be proud of what you're seeing there. Uh, most people, I think, would cite Detroit as an example of that I'm going to pick on a smaller example that I know pretty well, which is Dayton, Ohio, where more than 30 percent of the kids are in charter schools, where my organization, the Thomas B. Fordham Foundation, is an authorizer of a few of the charter schools, um, but where a huge number of the fraction of the charter schools in Dayton, while they may be marginally better than the dismal district, are pretty, pretty mediocre schools. Because the way Ohio's charter law works, lots of people who really shouldn't have been given charters in the first place were given them. And the bad ones haven't been shut down. They've just been continued on year after year. And the parents like them well enough because they're safe and friendly and and uh, welcoming. Um, but when you look at the results they're producing, uh, and I would uh, happily exempt three of the charter schools we sponsor in Dayton because they're terrific schools. But an awful lot of them are just almost as mediocre as the district schools that the kids would otherwise be going to. And that's because of a bunch of um, structural and fiscal and policy reasons that are built in to the way Ohio has organized its uh, charter sector.
3: We have 44 states, I think it is now, with charter laws, plus the District of Columbia. And they're they're all different. And so there have been states that have made big mistakes. Mm. Ohio was one of them. They just they allowed too many authorizers, and then they didn't hold the authorizers accountable for the school's performance. Many of these states are trying to fix the situation, but you, you see a lot of variety from state to state.
1: Is that uh, a key, Chester, to be really sort of picky about who is qualified enough to open up a charter school?
2: Yeah, it's a real uh, tough trade-off. Because if you're very picky about who's qualified to open it up, and that would account largely for the successes in, for example, Boston and New York, uh, you do end up with, on the whole, very strong charter schools that you would be pleased to send your child to. On the other hand, you don't end up with very many charter schools.
1: And that's where you get into lotteries and stuff, right, where hardly anybody's getting into these schools.
2: And you get the long waiting lists, the painful lotteries where, where thousands of kids are, are in tears because they didn't get in. Because uh, the supply doesn't equal the demand. But when you let mm. the supply equal the demand, you risk ending up with mediocre schools as well. Mm.
3: But if you have a strong authorizer who's who's doing their job, as in New Orleans, as in D.C., as in Denver, over time they can authorize a lot of charter schools, but each year they can be careful. So you can have both. You can have high quantity and high quality. You just you can't have it overnight. Mm.
1: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with David Osborne, author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. And also with me is Chester Finn, author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads. And we're talking about the influence of charter schools on American education. Um, so let's dive into some of the uh, real questions that people have who are not sure or don't like charter schools. One thing thing you hear is that charter schools pull money away from public schools. You know, a kid says, okay, well, I won the, you know, the charter school lottery and I'm going to go to charter school and my money is going to follow me there. And all this money ends up getting drained out of a public school classroom and and a public school teacher is trying to make do with, with a lot less funding. Carrie, that's impossible. Yeah, you want to talk about that? Okay. Because
3: charter schools are public schools. So they're not draining a dime from public schools. Okay,
1: how does it work? They're draining
3: money from school districts, traditional school districts. Now, do we believe that the money belongs to the traditional school districts? Or do we believe that the legislators appropriated the money to educate the children? So if a child moves from one district to another, do we want the money staying in the first district? Of course not. The money goes with the child. It's the same with charters. If you suddenly have—if you had 100 fifth-graders last year, and this year you've got 90, should we still fund you for 100? Would that be right?
1: Does it cause— Tremendous financial hardship to the school, you know, where the the kids leave. Because one tricky thing is it can change potentially wildly from year to year, right, how many kids you have in your school, where it's just a normal uh, sort of people flowing in and out of your district because they're moving. Uh, may not be as fast. It
3: doesn't change the numbers wildly from year to year. Mm. But uh, sure, if you have leadership, leaders of your school and your district who don't change anything when their conditions change, then you'll end up with schools with half the seats empty. You still have to heat them. You still have to light them. And you'll end up in financial crisis. Mm. On the other hand, if you have leaders at the school board level, the superintendent level, and, and the school level who are able to respond to new circumstances, they're going to do something creative. They're going to say, okay, we're down to half the seats, so let's lease out half the building to a charter operator. That's what happens in Denver, for example. Let me add one financial
2: point. Um, On average around the country, charters get only about three quarters as many dollars per student as do the district schools. And that means that while some of the money leaves the district for the charter when the child leaves, some of the money associated with that child stays with the district. Uh, In fact, typically the state dollars move and the locally generated, the property tax or school levy dollars stay put uh, and don't move to the charter school. And I I sort of joke sometimes that in in a district where there's only one child left in the district because everybody else has gone to the (laughs) the charter schools, That one child is going to have many millions of dollars spent on his education.
1: Um, Chester, let's talk about the other, I think one other really big concern that people have. It's that, you know, okay, so you've got a big district, uh, there's a few charter schools available, you know, the very motivated parents or the very motivated kids try to get into those charter schools and or the charter schools themselves pick those children. And the people who are left behind are maybe people whose parents didn't know, you know, very much about charter schools. Maybe they have special education needs and the charter schools thought, well, I don't know. We don't really have the resources to deal with this child I mean, do charter schools end up taking a kind of unfair representation, leaving leaving public schools with an equally unfair representation of who's in that district?
2: It's a frequently asked question, and it needs to be uh, said that you want to beware of slipping into what I've, I've come to call worst case social policy, where any given education reform is deemed to be unjust or a failure if it doesn't deal with the worst imaginable child situation that you can dream up. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the kids attending charter schools, by and large, are poor and minority. Um, uh, many of them do indeed have motivated parents. And uh, I think that's, uh, those, are, those are lucky children, but those are motivated parents who are not getting their children well-educated uh, in the traditional district schools, which is why they want to move. I will not say that every charter school is right for every child, uh, and any more than every district school is right for every child.
1: Mm. Uh, David, your daughter um, taught at a charter school that I think you described as struggling in New Orleans. Um, What did you learn from that experience? What did she learn from that experience?
3: Oh, gosh, it was so helpful to me, because here I'm doing all this research, and, and she's Right there on the ground. Kind of
1: Mary's theory and practice, isn't Yeah, it?
3: very yeah. poor kids, all African-American, and a pretty poorly run charter school. So I would visit, and um, it was so helpful to me to just keep my feet on the ground um, and realize that this is complicated and it doesn't all work. She learned how important consistent discipline is in a school, uh, because the biggest problem at her school was that a fight would break out in the classroom. She was teaching fifth and sixth grade English Mm. and the teacher would send the student to the discipline dean and the discipline dean, rather than providing the discipline that that the policy said he should, would 10 minutes later send the kid back to class. Mm. Totally undermined the teachers, undermined their control of the classroom and that school lost a lot of good young teachers because they didn't want to deal with that. Mm. Um, The other big thing that she Mm. learned was that a good school wasn't enough for those kids. They had so much trauma in their lives. You know, this is, these are kids whose families went through Katrina and there's been a murder epidemic among teenagers, particularly African-American teenagers in New Orleans since Katrina. Hmm. So a lot of her kids knew family members or people in the neighborhood who'd been killed. Um, she f- she felt that those kids needed more than a good school, mm-hmm. and so she went. She left after three years and went to graduate school to try to figure out, you know, what more could we do for families living in poverty in the inner city to help their children succeed,
1: Chester? What do you see happening to the charter school movement? Is it gaining steam? Uh, are regulators, you know, concerned or cracking down? I mean, I just wonder. If we were to have this conversation again in fifteen or twenty years, right? You think back to like a nation at risk. If we were to have this conversation again in a little while, uh, where do you think we'd be?
2: We'd be seeing a lot more charter schools, for one thing. Uh, It's been been growing by leaps and bounds, and I see absolutely no reason to think that that's going to stop. We'd see a lot more quasi charter schools or or similar to charter schools operated by districts and um, themselves and by others. We will also see, however. Uh, unrelenting and continuing and increasingly desperate political pushback by teacher unions and others that would like charters to go away. Um, if they're smart, they'll co-opt charter teachers into joining the unions, but so far they've had very limited success in that, so they'd rather now try to kill off charters, which they won't do, but they will make it harder to survive. And there, there is a real risk of overregulating regulating uh, charters because every time something goes wrong in a charter school, Uh, somebody in any charter school in a state, somebody wants to put a new regulation on all charter schools in the state. And you could end up with charters that lack much of that crucial autonomy, um, that, uh, David was talking about and that, and that is uh, present in every successful charter school. So I think we're going to see a, um, mixed bag, but on the whole, the country is moving toward educational choices for families. And they're coming in many forms, uh, including, uh, Private schools, magnet schools, virtual schools, uh, home schools. And that's going to continue unstopped. And I think we're going to uh, uh, see some improved academic results uh, as a consequence Hmm. of all this.
1: In your view, we talked in the very beginning about about being behind other countries and not not, you know, moving fast enough in terms of our education system. In your view, bigger than charter schools, looking at the whole education system, are we moving fast enough? Are we getting better fast enough?
2: No, not fast enough by any means. But uh, two big changes have occurred um, since a nation, a nation at risk. And they're both pretty positive, I think, for the country. Uh, The one we've been talking about is the arrival of options and choices and uh, some freedom to pick your school and to have schools have greater freedom to operate. The other big change, of course, and controversial but nevertheless happening, is that we have academic standards now for schools and we're judging schools by their um, outcomes rather than, as we used to do, by what's spent on them or what their promises are or or how, how nice their building is. So the movement towards standards and accountability on the one hand and towards school choices on the other hand are going to make things better. Fast enough? Well, no. I'd say uh, Singapore is still moving faster.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: But if we could convince people that the evidence from New Orleans, from D.C., from Denver, even from Boston, says if we organized public schools in this new way, we could double their effectiveness in less than 10 years. And that is what the evidence says. When Maybe you talk we about can effectiveness. speed it up.
1: When you talk mm-hmm. about effectiveness, are we talking about um, a test? And if so, what test are we talking about? We're talking
3: about? about multiple. You can't just use test scores. Okay. I mean, I argue that we, test scores should only be half the picture. We should also look at graduation rates. We should look at parental Judgments, we should survey parents and ask how they judge the quality of a school. And we should send experts in, as many authorizers do, to the school every couple of years and do a qualitative assessment of mm. the quality of that school. Because test scores only tell you a certain amount, there's a lot you can't get from test scores. So mm. we need to be much more sophisticated about how we judge quality. Mm.
1: David Osborne is the director of the Reinventing America's School Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's also the author of the book Reinventing America's Schools. Chester Finn is a president emeritus at the Fordham Institute, and he's a former assistant secretary of education and author of the book Charter Schools at the Crossroads, Predicaments, Paradoxes, and Possibilities. Thanks to both of you for being here.
3: Oh, thank you. a pleasure.
1: We want to hear from you about your experience with charter schools. Do you have a child who goes to one? Do you live in a city that has embraced them? Is that a good thing? Write to us or email us a voice memo at innovationhub at wgbh.org. That's innovationhub at wgbh.org.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. And from Mimecast, nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com.
1: Some people are perfectionists and some are not. I am definitely not a perfectionist when it comes to cleaning my house, but I am a little bit more of a stickler when it comes to grammar. Eugenia Chang is a mathematician who talks with us from time to time about how math intersects with life. And she says she's definitely not a perfectionist, but she admits that she often stays up late at night working on math or playing the piano or baking French macaroons. Chang writes the Everyday Math column in The Wall Street Journal, and she's the scientist-in-residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And she argues that even if you're tempted to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of sleep to indulge those perfectionist tendencies, you can keep them in check.
4: How? Chang says, just don't believe in perfection. What is Perfection. Even. I don't think it exists. And so I don't think that we can even strive to achieve it. Or at least that's why I don't, because I don't think that perfection exists. Hmm.
1: So, where is the line? Like, how do you know how hard you should work on something and whether you should pay attention to every comma? which is something I always I worried about, you know, it, is this little change worth making or is it, uh, you know, it's not worth my time to make it?
4: Oh, absolutely. And when I write slides, I make slides and I move words, point one of a point to the right, because it really <laughs> makes a difference. <laughs> it, does, it does, really. Make a difference. It makes a difference to me and how I feel. <laughs> so my mother taught me from when I was very young about the law of diminishing returns and that really stuck with me. And I recognize that many people don't have a mother who teaches them about the law of diminishing returns when they're about six. (laughs) But I decided that the key is not just the outcome by itself, but it's the ratio of outcome to effort. So if you have to put in a lot of effort, then that makes a difference to whether you should really bother, depending on whether the outcome makes a really huge difference or not. So Mm. if the amount of effort is small, then sure. And if you get a really huge payoff for the amount of effort you're making, but at a certain point, that payoff starts getting less relative to the amount of effort that you have to make. And so the best place to stop is once you've started getting those diminishing returns. And sometimes... It's not even just that the ratio gets smaller, it starts being negative. So one example from the kitchen is when you're making puff pastry, you fold over the pastry to make more layers of pastry. And the more layers you get, you roll them out and they're really thin and they get thinner and thinner, which makes them more delicate and more delicious. But there are diminishing returns because if you do it too many times, Mm -hmm. then you overwork the pastry and it'll become tough and it won't rise and the layers will start breaking. that's why, if you look in most recipe books, it says to do it six times because someone has figured out <laughs> that that is when the law of diminishing returns kicks in.
1: So then the other side of that is uh, having a minimum standard. How do you know where you're going to say, but I do want to do it six times. You know, I don't want to fold this puff pastry five times because it's not good enough in my view. Or I do want to add that comma or I do want to move
4: that, you know, word point 0.1% on the slide. How <laughs> do you know? That is where I sometimes get into trouble because I do have quite high minimum standards that are acceptable to me. And so I have to at least keep going until I've reached that minimum standard. And then once I get there, I will often be satisfied much earlier than a perfectionist would because I reckon I have mm. met that minimum standard. And this is definitely true when I'm doing something like writing a first draft mm-hmm. of an article or a book. Then I allow myself very low minimum standards just to get it done. And so I don't, I don't get writer's block the first time around because I'm not trying to aim for perfection. I'm just aiming to get something down. And I do this in research with a colleague of mine as well. We often say to ourselves, we're just going to do something. (laughs) Anything doesn't matter. And once we've released ourselves from that minimum standard for the first time through, then that just sets ourselves free, it's when in the final stages where the diminishing returns can be really tricky. And then some people keep working all the way until the deadline, because they think that will give us the best outcome. But I think things like stress and pressure start mounting up. And then there's that thing where when you go through an article and correct typos, you're kind of doomed to insert some as well. And at a certain point, are you inserting more typos than you're correcting? (laughs) That can
1: happen. I'll tell you what really works against you in that idea, which I think is a really good one, of not worrying about the first draft and just saying, like, I'm just going to get my ideas down and not worry about the little things. Things like spell check and grammar check, which I have to remember to turn off, but I don't do. But it's very annoying to see these, like, red underlines, and I want to go and address them.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. I always turn those off because I can't stand them. And Smart. also, I, I quite often type with my eyes closed, which helps because otherwise I will just keep <laughs> doing a running commentary on what I'm typing.
1: I'm going to start doing that and just see. We'll see what my colleagues think of what I produce. Just start <laughs> typing with my eyes closed and see what comes out. Um, when you give other people advice for thinking about perfectionism,
4: what do you say to them? Well, sometimes I actually really like passing on the advice of my nephew, who is now eight years old, and when he was seven, he made a little motivational video for his little brother who was going into kindergarten, and he said this amazingly wise thing. He said that if you do the wrong thing, then don't worry about trying to be perfect. He said, as long as you have fun and do your best, then you did perfect. <laughs> and. I often think about that, and I think about that a lot in the music salon that I run in downtown Chicago called the Liederstube, where we present classical music in a much more informal and spontaneous setting than it usually is. So the mm. aim is to to break down barriers around it, so that people can enjoy classical music mm. informally. But it's also to help musicians free themselves of that awful pressure of being on stage and trying to be perfect. And so we have a really fantastic ratio of outcome to effort. Because we make practically no effort whatsoever. <laughs> we don't rehearse, we don't prepare, and we make sure everybody has had plenty to, you know, imbibe so that everyone is suitably relaxed. And then we just play things spontaneously, and we so we've completely released ourselves. But the outcome, it's not perfect in the sense of playing all the right notes. It's not perfect in the sense of being correct all the time. But in a way, it's perfect because we tried our best and we had fun. And we've shared music with people. And we have released ourselves from that pressure of being under the spotlight. We're sharing music, we're enjoying ourselves. And the outcome to effort ratio is really excellent. Right. I love that. Eugenia Chang is the author of Beyond
1: Infinity, and she's a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Eugenia, thanks so much. Thank you. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. In
1: 1993, when Bill Clinton signed the North American Free Trade Agreement, a tall man stood off to the side clapping. It was former President Gerald Ford, and though he was from a different party than Clinton, he argued that NAFTA made sense for at least one reason, immigration. Ford said, Defeat NAFTA and there will be a tremendous flow of Mexicans to the United States wanting jobs in the U.S. We don't want that. And indeed, since the signing of NAFTA, the number of people coming to the U.S. from Mexico has plunged. Between 2005 and 2010, the Pew Research Center estimates that more people left the U.S. for Mexico than left Mexico for the U.S. But if Ford thought that that would take immigration off the table as a hot button issue, He was wrong. Marco Rubio, a Republican senator from Florida whose parents came here from Cuba in the 1950s, says that immigration has to change. The standards have to be different from when his parents came.
3: They came at a different era in our history. Our laws always are adjusted for the era in which we lived in. Moving towards a more merit-based system of immigration is a reality in the 21st century. That's why every other industrialized country in the world is doing that. In essence, my argument, I don't want to limit legal immigration. I certainly want to change the way we conduct it because we are in an economic competition for talent.
1: What's been proposed is the RAISE Act, sponsored by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, and Senator David Perdue, Republican of Georgia. It reduces immigration overall, and it embraces what is often called a merit-based system. But what is a merit-based system, and would it help get our economy ready for the future? Well, the RAISE Act would give potential immigrants points for things like English language proficiency, and you'd get points for having bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and doctorates. Having a job offer would also earn you points. Last summer, Senator Perdue explained why he felt that our immigration system needed to change.
3: We're competing with other countries for this talent, uh, just like we're competing for other natural resources around the world. But right now, by going to a merit-based system, we will assure that the American economy can attract the best and the brightest. But it also protects American workers because it no longer uh, is focused on uh, people who are family related, but focuses on the
1: merit-based qualifications of the people applying. President Trump has embraced Purdue's bill and some of the president's closest advisors, like Stephen Miller, have been intimately involved in the minutiae of the bill. Here's the president speaking before a joint session of Congress in February. Switching away from this current system of lower skilled
3: immigration, and instead adopting a merit-based system, we will have so many more benefits. It will save countless dollars, raise workers' wages, and help struggling families, including immigrant families, enter the
1: middle class. And they will do it quickly. And they will be very, very happy indeed. Canada, which the president has cited as an inspiration, does embrace, at least in part, a merit-based system. Having a college degree, having enviable job skills, having good language skills, those are all highly prized in Canada. But Canada and the U.S. differ in a number of ways, including the number of refugees that are let in. And perhaps the biggest point of difference is that Canada admits tons of immigrants, per capita, three times more than we do. And Canadians do not seem all that concerned they're actually very happy with their policies and the plan is to admit more immigrants Kevin Johnson who's an expert on immigration and immigration law and the Dean of the University of California Davis School of Law says that the instinct to update our immigration policies is right on but that President Trump and his congressional allies have not found a formula that works
5: they're concerned that the current Legal immigration levels are too high, and they want to reduce them. And they also want to change the kinds of immigrants who are coming to this country. Uh, they want immigrants that they view are able to uh, assimilate more quickly into American society. And at some level, they want to change the demographics of the immigrants who are coming to this country. They want to decrease the number of Mexicans who are coming, who often come on uh, legally on, on family visas. They want to decrease the number of Chinese immigrants coming to the United States who often come on family visas want to decrease the number of Indian uh, immigrants who often come on family visas. So I think the the real goal uh, of the RAISE Act is to limit overall legal immigration. Uh, And you see some of the advocacy groups that support the bill, groups like Numbers USA and the Federation for American Immigration Reform, they support this bill because they see it as reducing legal immigration and restricting the numbers of immigrants coming to the United States each year.
1: You've written about the fact that there may be some unintended consequences to merit-based immigration. Do you want to talk about what those might be?
5: Well, I think if you limit overall migration and limit the numbers of immigrant visas uh, while focusing on people with uh, PhDs, for example, uh, what you'll do is you'll fuel future flows of undocumented immigrants. You'll encourage people to enter illegally who uh, want to rejoin brothers and sisters in this country, want to rejoin parents in this country. So one of, one of the impacts of sort of limiting immigrant visas and focusing on, on only people uh, with particular skills off of the economy will be to fuel a future undocumented immigrant population in the United States. And what I think we need is something that decreases uh, a future undocumented immigration in the, pop- in the United States. So that's why I would suggest that we think more broadly about Um, visas for low-skilled and medium-skilled workers, as well as for the high-skilled workers.
1: Do you think we're doing a good job matching up our immigration system with sort of what is needed for the future economy in the U.S.?
5: No. I think that we have an Immigration Nationality Act that was passed in 1952. It was designed to keep out communists from the United States. It was designed to close the borders the extent possible. It's been amended many times over the last 50-plus years, but it is a statute that was created and built at a very different time in our history. And as Senator Rubio mentioned before, every period in our history deserves and warrants a different kind of immigration policy. And I think the 1952 Act is not particularly flexible, is not necessarily geared to the economic needs of the United States in the 21st century. Um, I don't think it's geared toward the United States economic needs in the, the, the late 20th century, much <laughs> less the 21st century. It's not good. And, and I think that we really should think carefully about what we need as, as a nation in terms of our labor needs and the economic needs for the future. And along those lines, that's why it's so uh, darn important to attract the best and brightest students, uh, not only in the STEM fields, but often in the STEM fields, that so would really help the economy. Uh, in the future and would fit in to the the economic needs of the 21st century.
1: Let's back up for a minute because we have certainly seen a backlash amongst blue-collar voters against immigration in this country. It's what the numbers show. Is it possible that in creating a new immigration system, we just change the sort of target of concern or anger, that when you start admitting a whole bunch of doctors and and tech workers, that you get a whole bunch of white-collar workers saying, well, you know, I had an easy path to this job, and now there's a whole bunch of people from other places who speak English, great, they've been to college in other countries, but they're competing with me for my job.
5: I think that's a possible issue, and it's actually even a a concern now among the high-skill temporary worker programs where, where some Americans think that we're bringing in high tech guest workers and making it harder for them to get a job and the job they they do get the wages are depressed i, I do think that there should be an effort to ensure that our wage and labor laws are enforced uh, and that our current laws on the books are enforced when it comes to labor protections for for all americans
1: i just have another want to press a little harder on this cuz you know you talked about the the senators who introduced this, um, you know Tom Cotton, David Perdue, as wanting to um, have fewer Chinese immigrants, fewer uh, Indian immigrants, but it seems to me that if we move more towards a merit based system. That, I mean, there's lots of Indians, for example, at the Indian Institute of Technology um, who would be great candidates for such a program. There are many Pakistanis who also almost uniformly happen to be Muslim who are great candidates to be chemists and whatever. So I don't know. It, it, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what those senators want, that shift. Or I mean, give me a sense of what you think.
5: Well, when it comes to Mexico, I mean, it may not affect India as much as it affects Mexico, but most Mexicans who come here legally to the United States currently come here on family-based visas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing for Chinese immigrants, Mm -hmm. and same for Indian immigrants. So by... Limiting the family visas, mm. you'd limit the number of people from those countries. Mm. And it's not like uh, the employment visas would go up in numbers. They'd probably be around the same that they currently are. I see. So it wouldn't necessarily lead to an increase in migration from India uh, or, or any other country. In mm-hmm. fact, it might be less migration mm-hmm. because the numbers are less. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, when you're dealing with migration from Mexico in particular, Uh, You don't have as many PhDs in computer science coming from Mexico today to the United States as you do, for example, from India. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's fair to say that one of the primary focuses of um, President Trump uh, and and many people who want to limit migration is on Mexican immigrants and a concern with Mexican immigrants. Mm -hmm. As President Trump put it, Mexico sending it's not its best, but it's worse to the United States. I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's a lot of concern in some quarters, with migration from Mexico.
1: Finally, um, you've looked a lot at uh, the history of immigration to the United States. How does this, can you like, put in context for us what this moment feels like to you in terms of other points in history when there's been upheaval and discussion about immigration?
5: Yeah, I think, um, if I had to identify a few different times in u s history that this period seems most analogous to, I would say the time in the the late eighteen hundreds when Congress passed a series of laws known as the Chinese Exclusion laws designed to keep out uh Chinese immigrants from the United States. I think uh it's it's also similar to a time right after World War One. Uh, When the nation passed uh, uh, the Immigration Act of 1924 that created a a quota system that really was designed to keep out uh, Southern and Eastern Europeans, including many many Jewish immigrants from the United States. Those would be the two closest sort of parallels in U.S. history. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about this current moment is I haven't seen anything... Um, like what we've been seeing in in recent years since the 1950s or or thereabouts in terms of the concern with immigration, the fears with immigration, and uh, the statements about immigrants that are so one-sided that it's really sort of, in my mind, soiled the the discussion of immigration. Mm -hmm. The harsh language about Mexican immigrants that President Trump has used, um, you know, and uh, also the harsh language he's directed at Muslims in general as opposed to any uh, terrorists in particular are very different than what we've seen um, from you know any president in the last 50 years. Uh, and so, so to, to me, um, this is a, a time... Uh, that's got historical parallels but is also different from a lot of what we've seen. I didn't always agree, for example, with uh, President George W. Bush's policies on immigration, although I always thought that he used a language that was designed to um, limit division as opposed to encourage division. Mm -hmm. I think he was more sensitive, and I think he actually had a a more nuanced approach to immigration than um, our our current president. So um, it's um, certainly a memorable time.
1: Kevin Johnson is the dean of the University of California Davis School of Law. He's also a professor of public interest law there and Chicano studies. Thank you so much for your time.
5: It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks to the people who helped put together this show Senior Producer Matt Purdy, Associate Producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filippino, and Engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Sarah Fraser and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana Farber Cancer Institute, Discover, Care, Believe, and from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.